Welcome to CSG Politics. Uh, before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Obviously, uh, it is difficult to be going to any sort of place that serves alcohol. Um, <clears throat> it's just the nature of the restrictions right now due to COVID. Um, but you can all, we can go online to bfwdenver.com and pick yourself up a bottle. I mean, everything that they provide there in the store, they can give you online. Uh, they got whites, they got reds, they got Rieslings, part of the partnership from the Western Slope Gallery, um, gallery winery named uh, Stormtellers. Uh, they also got uh, my favorite, which is the 2017 Cabernet. It's, they make their own wine from grapes in the Sonoma County of uh, California. So uh, if you like California wines, Basically, uh, Blanchard Family Wines is the place for you to go, uh, but it really is a local business. So it is a local uh, Denver establishment, and they need your support in a time when, obviously, a lot of small businesses are not doing well right now. Uh, so if you can, go to bfwdenver.com. If, if you can't go in, they do have limited outdoor uh, in the dairy block seating available. I don't know how long it's going to go on. Uh, go to bfwdenver.com and talk to them and see how long it is going on. But you can also do a virtual wine tasting, which is extremely popular. Um, that uh, probably is one of the most popular things they have done since the uh, uh, pandemic began. Um, additionally, they've got uh, other options for you to try. They got, they got things you can taste. Anything you need at Blanchard Family Wines. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple of blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Go to bfwdenver.com. You can also contact them on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. When you talk to them, say Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you in. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining us on the latest CSG podcast, or not CSG podcast, CSG politics. That's it's on the CSG network. Um, it's also a podcast. It's also a podcast. So, with, I mean, I hit on the high points there. Um, <laughs> we, uh, right now, I'd, I'd like to introduce you to my friend somewhere in who is in not New Mexico, a, uh, a man who I haven't seen in person for uh, a year now since his Christmas party of last year. But I could see him right now, you know, looking into a camera. It's my friend, Pat Guerin. Hello, Pat. Hey, Morty. Good to see you. Uh, not in New Mexico. Never in New Mexico. Though I don't have any problem with New Mexico, just yeah. for the record. Not and, that there's anything and, wrong. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the worst part about not being able to have my Christmas party this year is that, uh, you know, we can't, uh, we can't toast one another in person. But uh, this is a good um, substitute for that, uh, all things considered. There was a there was a time I think in like uh, 2017 I think I was invited to like eight Christmas parties, and I had to say like at one point it's like I can't go to every one of these things. <laughs> it's like just like I will I will there, go to middle of it. <laughs> there was a time in my 20s when I'd get invited to, to eight Christmas parties, and I'd be like, I need to make sure I hit every one of these. <laughs> I have the time, I have the desire, and I have the liver to. Uh, to do yes. it right but uh, you know times have changed and, uh, and i've aged so yeah, yeah that we, we, we've, we've all aged and uh but uh <laughs> it is early december it's your first uh csg politics of december so let's hit on some uh hit on some news and notes of the past week since our last uh, csg podcast um i would like to point out that uh glenn greenwald is still crazy and uh it's just uh he wrote an article uh, with just the title, After the Deep State Sabotaged His Presidential Bid, Bernie Sanders Mocks Those Who Believe It Exists. And it's just uh, uh, the person who pointed that this uh, pointed out, a guy named Derek Thompson on Twitter, says there's a lot going on there, 100%. And if you know anything about Glenn Greenwald, that's a, there's just so many layers to that title. But he went to Substack where he can like write with impunity after the apparently the Gestapo-like um, tactics of the editors at The Intercept 
told him he couldn't write batshit crazy stuff on their on their website. So, well, you know, and everyone's going to Substack now, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry that like the social media world of Twitter and uh, and others that have basically fundamentally put information sharing into a whole new age of uh, unchecked lunacy that that was too restrictive, and so you have to uh, now find another way in which to go back to the future there of uh, blogging essentially mm-hmm. and uh and blasting it out with the personality that's been cultivated by some time spent in either legacy media or uh other media media startups you know you see the guys you know that were part of the founding of vox and other you know big things like that all moving over to do their own kind of paid newsletter type work and uh it's sort of a monetization of the twitter world and anyone who spends any time on twitter will see the constant warnings i think you uh, proclaim them regularly, Jeff. Um, Twitter is not real life. <laughs> yes. And this is just another thing to uh, try to uh, muddy that that sort of observation that, oh, you know, now not only do I get to see this guy tweet, you know, all these things, but I can subscribe for dollars right. to uh, a week a weekly email that like, you know, enumerates the things that, that uh, represent that person's perspective, which largely goes unchecked in those environments, at least on Twitter. If you say something ridiculous, you know, you get ratioed or you get a lot of pushback or it's something that people that disagree with you can cite specifically what you said and respond to it. It really when is. Everything uh, kind of goes back to underground. Yeah. It really is nouveau blogging, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, and who was clamoring for that? That's no. what I want to know. Well, you look, know like... look, I'm, I'm one of the progenitors of, of this, the destruction of, of traditional media by my, by my um, being part of Denver Stiffs, uh, joining them over like 12 years ago. Obviously, uh, or 11 years ago, I had uh, obviously a hand in it and I deeply, deeply regret it. But it's almost like it's weird because usually people go to, to medium to uh, to expound on their bat shit crazy thoughts and they don't get paid for it. But now people want to say, like, I'm going to go to Substack and I'm going to get as, because I get a lot of people who agree with me and I'm going to get money on this. I think Matt Taibbi's over there now on Substack. Mm-hmm. Uh, is Matt Iglesias over there? Yeah, I believe it's so. Um, and uh David Pluff has uh, got um, a Substack going on. Does and he? I didn't it's, know that. It's um, a very interesting sort of, it's almost like it, it, it's the political Twitterati version of Cameo, where <laughs> for a small fee, you can have some niche well-known person um, get money from you in exchange for something that seems personal. And, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how that uh, thrives, especially because I do expect there to be a change in sort of the, the high heat of political insights and the desire for them. And what, as I say every week, I hope to be the make America, uh, make American politics boring again, right. make politics boring again, mm-hmm. um, sort of uh, uh, reality that I think uh, Joe Biden will bring to the table. You know, I mean, we're not going to be we, we, again, and not to repeat myself every single week, but I don't expect to seeing a lot of like news making things happen at at three o'clock in the morning on Joe Biden's Twitter account. You know, and well, I imagine I, that he'll probably barely even use the Joe Biden, and, and everything will come out through the press office. You know, under the POTUS right. uh, handle. You notice, but I think what uh, the, one of the perverse things that uh, Donald Trump did was he. Ex- he gave license to, and it's not a both sides thing. I'm just, if you're nuts, you're nuts. So that there's only, there's only one pile of nuts. Okay. <laughs> and then there's, there's not like extreme, there's not two sides of nuts. You're just nuts. And I'm, I'm using crude language here. And he gave license to these people because they found out that there's an audience through social media for them to, for these suckers to give you their money in order to hear whatever, you know, a deep state conspiracy that you want to uh, spout like Clint Greenwald who oh. left the intercept in a huff because they told him that he couldn't publish this batshit crazy article on Joe Biden before, before the election. And he went nuts, quit and an, 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 a magazine that he founded quit. And then he like uh, goes to Substack where he can cultivate his, uh, his wing nutness. Well, I mean, once you push the, uh, the sort of, 
role of the fourth estate all the way to the brink and to the point that it fractures into such a um, unpredictable and unwieldy albatross like it has through both uh, traditional media and also like we're talking about here uh, Twitter you find yourself with you know the broken pieces and people still looking for attention and the only way they can do that is essentially to like respond to either the crazies out there and what their desires are and it really helps when you have a mouthpiece from like a president who is um, who is laying the groundwork for that or picking up those things that you say and we talk about that fox feedback loop all the time yeah. picking up the things that they hear from these guests and, and commentators on fox and then amplifying them from you know his twitter account to his hundreds of millions of followers and then they start getting picked up by um you know people like uh glenn greenwald there um and you know just that whole hunter biden laptop story whatever i mean i don't know i'm a partisan i consume partisan media and I, you know, want to always sort of declare that bias, but I mean, it, it just doesn't pass the smell test. I mean, Hunter Biden, who lives in California, goes to this dumpy little electronic shop and drops off a laptop with all kinds of sensitive information on it and then never bothers to pick it up. So it gets cloned and sent off to the FBI. And then, you know, now that electronic shop is like shuttered and the person involved has disappeared and and then you had other people that were equally in, incredulous and those people were the ones that were running like newsrooms of major mainstream or uh, you know um again legacy style media places like cnn that just didn't really cover it because it wasn't newsworthy and it didn't seem credible and then that's a rallying cry again of like why the mainstream media is corrupt and then the leftist and it just gives rise to these people that you know, in the past would have been like, you know, uh, Pat Buchanan, we don't have to listen to everything that comes out of his mouth, even though he has a, uh, a show on CNN. And, and and usually there's someone across the table from him that pushes back, where now it's just like, whatever nuttiness that you want to blow off into the universe, feel free. And there will be people there just eager to consume it. You know, it, and, and this kind of dovetails a new, uh, another uh, news story I wanted to talk about here. And it's, it's something that, um, Speaking of media that you don't normally consume, um, Tim Miller, I became, uh, actually, I, I had no idea. I had, we didn't follow Tim Miller until I found out he was a Jamal Murray fan. Uh, that, really, <laughs> that was, that was, that was the reason. That was like, oh, wow. And then he like, I mean, he's a conservative and all this stuff. And I'm not, but he tweeted out an article that was in the Bulwark about uh, who was the writer? Uh, on the in that bulwark article about Ron Johnson, uh, uh, I'm going to credit see. him. Uh, it was I could tell you in just a second here. It was, it was, and he was just a writer. Um, it was Mark Becker. Mark Becker, um, yeah. who was a um, yeah, and he, as I recall, uh, yeah, he was a they say a former Brown County supervisor and former chairman of the Brown County Republican party in Wisconsin. So Wisconsin, he right. is not normally, um, a, he's not a journalist yeah. and that all, you know, maybe that gives him more credibility in some circles, but uh, you know, he's a longtime Republican. And so he had a relationship with Ron Johnson from their time working together in Republican politics in Wisconsin. Right. And so he reached out to him and wanted to have a conversation about the results of the election. So. Not right. to steal it from either. No, no, no. And, and that kind of goes into with it because I'm not a, a reader of the of the bulwark. Um, but this <laughs> this article was brought to my attention uh, by the by Mark Becker. And when you stop to think about it, and him talking to Ron Johnson, who is a senator from uh, Wisconsin, Republican senator from Wisconsin, the state that gave us Russ Feingold, gave us Ron Johnson. I I I, I don't know. I can't reconcile those two things. But Wisconsin is a mystery. <laughs> it is. Um, but they. It is a conversation in private that he had with Ron Johnson, where Ron Johnson admits that uh, it would be political suicide to contradict uh, what the president is saying, even though he knows it to be not true. And it is. It is stunningly myopic and frighteningly uh, says a lot about, I guess, the president's base that he cultivated. Uh, yeah. I mean, basically um, there was a time not so long ago, you know, we're not super old guys, Morty, but uh, uh, you know, in, in a previous world, when a president of your party did something that was like egregious, you stood up and like said, okay, this is the reality. We need to like address it. Um, 
somehow in a, and I, you know, there's probably uh, people that have way more insight into this than I do, but it's a combination of the, um, the promulgation of uh, social media, the right. sort of ubiquitous nature of news and how it's on in your hand at all times, uh, the algorithm of the social networks, and then uh, reinforced by your sort of pick your news opportunities in like mainstream style consumption, like television and such, that if you build um, an insular enough um, sort of community in your political world, um, you can sort of force compliance into it. And right. it's not it's not overstating that to say that it's sort of a tactic pulled from like cultism. If you've caught any of the like documentaries on some of these bizarre cults um, that have come right. out in the last couple of years on Netflix and others, you know, you see how um, the leader of these cults demands absolute loyalty. And oftentimes they, um, they demand uh, you provide them with some sort of blackmail um, to demonstrate your desire to be held accountable. And uh, you see these in a lot of, you know, politicians that in the past might have been more inclined to be like, well, you know, I'm a senator and I'm separate from the president and I will criticize him when necessary and things like that. Um, but when it comes to this article in the bulwark about Ron Johnson, who, uh, as a side note, um, is a dead ringer for uh, um, George Costanza's boss on, on Seinfeld, uh, Kruger, <laughs> Mr. Kruger, um, who not only sort of physically embodies it, but sort of the aloof nature in which he says everything, which on right. Seinfeld is deliberative. And in Ron Johnson's case, I think it's just uh, sort of revealing. But he goes through in this article, I encourage anyone who hasn't read it to check it out, um, and, and has a conversation, you know, with somebody that he knows who is not a journalist. And so he's very candid. And he acknowledges that, uh, that Joe Biden won the election. And uh, he acknowledges that his his refusal to say so is purely politically driven that he would there would be hell to pay if he were to admit it and when you've gotten to the point now and you know a guy like ron johnson in wisconsin which incidentally joe biden won uh in the past there could have been a political calculation that you know him coming down on the side of like the system worked this is the hallmark of our society as we let the people vote that would be better for him politically in a state in which you're trying to get reelected in a couple of years. I think he is up for reelection in two years or yeah, maybe it's four years. years. But anyhow, he, um, you know, he's not interested in reaching out and building a base that involves more than just a hardcore people that are adherent to uh, Trumpism. Right. And so he can't even acknowledge that Donald Trump lost an election, which as the numbers continue to roll in, 7 million more people voted for Joe Biden. It's the biggest victory other than Obama's in the past, you know, generation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and also all the, you know, there's some talk about how the polls were, were off in some states and this and that. Now, you know, that's certainly true. But all the polls across the country, the national polls, all had Joe Biden over 50%. And that's where he ended up. So how is it that, like, seemingly reasonable minds continue to push back on this idea that it just, you know, we can't say for certain. We just don't know. And the, the, the valley between your Rudy Giuliani's who are out there, like, saying these crazy things all the time and the... Ron Johnson's of the world who are just kind of staying quiet, you know, is bridged by a commonality, which is that I don't think any of these people believe what they're saying. And our whole system depends on people engaging in good faith and acknowledging when they've lost. I mean, there's elections, I think the DA's election here in Colorado for several of the counties in the, the Denver mm -hmm. metro area was decided by like 100 votes or a very yep. small number of votes. And they just finally finished a recount and the person who lost, who's the progressive candidate, um, you know, she conceded and and uh, and then has moved on. Um, there was a, a house election in Iowa and an Iowa congressional district that was like at one point in the single digits. And then there's been like various recounts and things like that. Those are normal. You know, there's a, there was a county in um, Nevada that is doing a redo election on, uh, on a local election because it was so close. I think it was 10 votes or something like that. Um, and so they're doing a redo, a redo of that election because that's like the prudent thing to do with the information that they have. There's no information, no prudent information in the entire country that there was widespread voter fraud, that there were any states that were um, certified for one candidate. And in fact, more people voted for the others. There's no reason to believe those things. But according you know, to the Washington Post, 
they asked every single person in Congress who, um, every single Republican in Congress, you know, who could acknowledge that um, Joe Biden won the election, and they found two people. And, you know, they've got like 80 plus percent that refuse to say that Joe Biden's the president-elect. You know, I mean, um, Alex Azar, the acting HHS secretary, um, was repeatedly corrected on the Sunday shows this morning when, when referring to Vice President Biden, that he was president-elect Biden. And these people just talk right past it. And for it to be so detailed as it is in this um, Bulwark article that basically, you know, <laughs> he has this conversation. I don't know why he felt like he could all of a sudden be honest and no one would ever hear about it, but he's just like, Hey, this would be political suicide, you know, political suicide. So they're, they're putting essentially like the suicide or homicide of democracy on the table as a less important value than uh, their political viability. And they're not even up for election right now. Well, the logical extension of uh, coddling um, a president who like, cynically or not cynically denies reality is you have a fake hearing run by America, formerly America's neighbor, um, um, America's mayor who uh, was last seen reaching down his pants in a Borat movie uh, presiding over a fake hearing where you have a drunk Karen telling you that the, the pull, the, uh, <laughs> that the ballots were wrong. And it was like, it was, it would be high comedy if people didn't believe that shit. And, and then that is actually kind of where I'm, I'm at right now. It's that I've, got, I've moved beyond the people who are the instigators and the progenitors of this sort of myopic and slightly insane behavior to looking directly, directly at the American people saying, why do you believe this? And what led you to want to believe this, something that is clearly nuts. Um, and then you go to Ron Johnson, who is basically admitting that he ain't gonna deviate from the president because he's scared, essentially, of, and particularly in Wisconsin, which, which I think went to Biden by 20,000 votes, a little over 20,000. Yeah. That, that he, wouldn't, he wouldn't defy the, the president's supporters because it would be political suicide. It, it makes you wonder that if, if it's a collision of American poor education and uh, people who are just that cynically political taking advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a huge component of it, and it's not. This isn't. A, this isn't new for this sort of uh, um, way of thinking. I mean, the rejection of science in general, whether it be these anti-vaccine types or you know these climate changes a hoax types or whatever. Like, uh, there's a that element of our political discourse has been getting softened um, by these sorts of rejections of mainstream accepted scientific findings and yeah. such. Now for a generation, and so for there to be a group. Of people that rise to power on the backs of that to then see like oh well now you know I've discredited I've discredited the mainstream media as they like to call it um, which you know maybe it is more mainstream because it's wildly accessible but it's also for several generations been the source of information that we all commonly you know sought after and sure we could have debate but you know the facts would be presented in the New York Times or on CBS Evening News or whatever it is right um, and we could like say oh, okay but then we started cherry picking our information and that made it even easier to be like, oh, you know, these wildfires out in California doesn't have anything to do with the changing climate. It's because they're not sweeping up the forests, you know, like some sort of freaking lunacy. And then all the details that get involved in that, like, oh, you know what, the vast majority of the forests, forests are managed by, you guessed it, the federal government. You know, that's just a detail that's thrown out because it doesn't fit. And then you just continue to have these people that are, you know, supposedly um, the, you know, the educated class or the expert class that are getting involved in politics. And they start with these dishonest arguments because it gives them an opportunity to have their voices heard, whether it be on some sort of social media platforms or even as guests on, you know, cable news shows or on Fox News or whatever. And so they have an incentive to continue to do that. And I think that there's a tremendous amount of fear that when you get the spotlight off of a lot of this sort of talk, that they're not going to have that same level of power over a wide variety of people. You know, and that's not to say that, you know, MAGA rallies continuing, you know, for the next four years won't still attract a large amount of people. But 
they're not going to be carried live by the networks. They're going to be like kind of, I think that there's a good chance it'll be like largely dismissed by a large amount of people, but those that really bought into it and are the ones that are clamoring, you know, and to stop the steel movement and things right now, you know, they'll never be satisfied. And that was done to them deliberately, maybe not by Donald Trump, but you know, he started to do these things and seeing that they were successful. And then that became weaponized by people with like more strategic, um, approaches and more intellectual understandings of the ways in which they can manipulate the populace for their own power. Absolutely true. And I want to credit, uh, you know, it, I want to give people the opportunity to go read the article. It'll, it'll sober you up if you're, <laughs> if you just, you know, if you're lo looking to read something, it's, it's on the bulwark. It's called my call with Ron Johnson. He knows Biden won, but won't admit it. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's sobering to see, um, I read an article because particularly Ron Johnson is uh, a touchstone in uh, touchstone in um, uh, politics because of you know there was implications on him with the whole Russia thing too, and it it, it stretches a long way with Ron Johnson, so it's, it makes this read even more fascinating as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so I would go check it out seriously. It's a you know. We, uh, I don't, I don't often read the bulwark, but it was a really good, it was a really good article. So, um, I like Ron Johnson off the, the hook there. Um, <laughs> he is the number, I mean, he's like the perfect example of the lead, the, the, one of the leaders that have really made the U S Senate far less credible than it used to be. I mean, you know, it used to be, uh, you know, the most exclusive club in the world, a hundred, you know, gentlemen and later, fortunately, women as well. Um, but they had a more sort of um, uh, measured tone in the way that they interacted in government. And then the, they, the crazies were left for the house, which is yeah, they were the, the adults, like the Senate was supposed the to adults, be the adults, you know, yeah. And that's why they, you know, also were given such tremendous power when it came to their advice and consent um, pieces when it comes to uh, cabinet appointees and other such things. But, um, you know, the likes of Ron Johnson, who, you know, basically in that article admit that they are, you know, just a through and through politician looking out to exploit their best interests in a very cynical and shameless way. Um, is damaging to our desire to have, you know, um, collective confidence right. in the um, the main structures of, of government leadership. Absolutely. And I completely agree. Okay. Well, we are going to proceed into the next segment here um, uh, after we take a break. And then we all do a, once again, as you know, on the politics show, Pat and I talk a little bit about DraftKings. So we will be right back. Welcome back to CSU Podcast. Before we continue with the rest of the podcast, I'd like to talk to you about DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Mr. Garen, have you had any success recently with your uh, with your betting on uh, the NFL Sunday slate, or has this been more of a you win some, lose some kind of experience for you? Well, you know, in general, over the long, a long enough time, unless you're a real pro, it's always win some, lose some. Um, and uh, I would say the key is to, um, A, don't bet on your, your, your hometown team just because right. they're playing. You know, you think they're going to win or, they're, or lose. Uh, you know, have a reason behind it other than that's just the game you're going to be watching uh, this week. Mm -hmm. um, you know, find that other story that's out there that you, you heard on uh, sports radio or, or um, that, you, you know, you read about online or something that, that you think gives you an edge. And, you know, throw a couple of, couple of uh, dollars that way and sit back and enjoy. Um, because even if your team... You'll also see um, certain things like in um, that Eagles game earlier this week. Um, <clears throat> you assume oh, they're going to get destroyed, um, but, you know, the team's up big. At the end, they take their foot off the gas, and now, you know, that team that was a big underdog, you know, happens to cover, um, and, and you lose. So, you know. Gamble wisely, but the best way to do it is uh, drafting is because all the information is right in front of you. They even have uh, the stats for all the games versus, you know, in relation to the, to the betting. So they'll be like, oh, you know, this team is one, five, one in five against the spread as a favorite this right. season. Well, that's valuable information, even though they might be a, you know, a six and five team or something on, on their record. So everything you need right there in the app. Right. And, uh, you know, the, 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 
to, to talk about uh, what we've got going here at uh, DraftKings. Um, and it's interesting doing these, these interactions because I like to talk to someone who actually does the gambling, and, whereas in me, Mr. Risk-averse uh, Jeff, I, I, do, I do not do this. So it's nice to get some firsthand information here <laughs> from uh, someone I who actually – I like how you say does the gambling. Does the <laughs> gambling. Like, you know, do you know what – my do- my daughter asked me, "Do you know anyone who does cigarettes?" You know, it's very similar. <laughs> does the cigarettes? Does the cigarettes? Yes. Uh, <laughs> the game may not be full, but there's definitely no shortage of madness. It's college basketball season. For us fans, college college basketball powers that be have gifted us a top tier matchup between two powerhouses. This weekend, Gonzaga and Baylor will be going toe to toe for what could be the nation's top ranking. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is bringing you closer to the action with these can't-miss offers. Uh, disclaimer here, that game was canceled uh, because of some COVID issues with the uh, Gonzaga team. So uh, just keep that in mind as you're hearing the rest of this thing. Downloaded the t- download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code MHS when you sign up for your, your shot to turn $101 into $100 when betting on either Gonzaga or Baylor to win. Once again, doesn't apply. That's right, bet $1 to win $100. Use promo code MHS during the sign-up and take advantage of these great offers for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. Uh, Colorado only. Bonus comprised of uh, first deposit bonus. Deposit bonus must have 25 times playthrough. Uh, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we are going to kind of finish up with our, you know, overall theme of this uh, podcast, and to kind of discuss. Um, former President Barack Obama has a book out, and he has been making the rounds. He did a Snapchat uh, interview uh, that kind of. You know, it, it was revealing in some stances he took on certain issues that have applied to not his presidency. And um, moreover, uh, it has given me thoughts about the legacy of Barack Obama, um, because we are now four years away from, you know, almost four years away from when he left office. So we have some time to really think about it. But really, this book Obama has, like every presidential book, in my view, is self-serving it 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 gives you it, their perspective and maybe glosses over some of their mistakes but with obama you do miss and there's something i really have kind of hit on with him this kind of go around with all these interviews is that uh you kind of miss the statesman ass aspect of barack obama that hasn't quite frankly hasn't been there uh the last four years and uh you kind of do miss the kind kind of the fact that he was, for better or worse, always the adult um, in a in a kind of a, a, he was the adult kind of presiding over the knife fight of Congress. <laughs> but uh, he kind of said some things about defund the police and stuff like that. Pat, is there anything that, that has stood out to you in the, while Obama's gone through his go rounds of uh, interviews uh, that uh, that you want to kind of talk about in this segment? Well, I think that, I mean, more broadly than just former presidents having memoirs that are always self-serving. I mean, that's usually the point of memoirs in general. Right. And when, you, when it comes to presidents, you know, they don't, they don't oftentimes, and traditionally, we'll just like speak in broad terms of how normal times are. Um, they are not always offering their perspective in response to things that are going out. Now, they're selling their policy positions. They're selling their, um, their sort of, you know, plans to their voters on what can garner it, um, 
support for them, but they're not telling you about the inner workings of what's going on on certain sort of, you know, fights with Congress or, you know, things happening in, in the culture or being talked about in the media. And they usually end up waiting, you know, four plus years after their administration to kind of giving you those behind the scenes sort of stories. And by that time, the, pop, the, the politics has usually moved on so much that it isn't necessarily fair to read it through the lens of current politics. You know, right. there's a lot of arguments now that like Joe Biden, is the most progressive candidate ever, you know, elected or to to um to the presidency and you're like well what about barack obama and you're like well barack obama if you remember came in in, in uh, 2008 with uh you know reservations about speaking out for marriage equality right. um other sort of issues along the way that then became part and parcel of like the progressive movement during his administration and then when he was gone the world continued to operate. They continued to react to things. And as progressives often do, they find with, you know, injustices and such and, and push them into the forefront of discussion based upon the circumstances going on. And it's not fair to hold an ex-president to that same standard. And so to, to specifically what he said about defund the police and, you know, just staying away from the argument itself, he said that, you know, do you want to have slogans or do you want to you know, make progress. Um, essentially, it's just, it's a rough quote. Um, and that is the element of political science that must be present in the sort of deliberative way in which a political party or a political movement tries to move forward. And if you go back to certain social issues, like in the early 70s, I was reading I think this was on Twitter today, Joe Scarborough was talking about it, about Baptists were like 70 or 80% Southern Baptists in support of abortion, specifically, you know, in cases of incest and rape and health of the mother and the child. And then the world changed when it became a political issue because Roe v. Wade came out. And now it was like, okay, we need to frame this in a certain way. And the way in which they did was pro-choice and pro-life. Right. And then it's like both sides kind of chose what they wanted to represent their view, but both of them are sort of inaccurate. You know, it's like constantly the pushback on the pro-life party is that they're pro-life when it comes to abortion, but when it comes to a variety of other things, they don't seem to take it as seriously. Right. Um, and on the, on the, and then that, that side also likes to call the opposite, their opposition instead of anti, um, instead of pro-choice, they call them, you know, essentially anti-life. Yeah. And that is all done deliberately through sloganeering in order to be able to succinctly stay, say what side of a position you're on. Yeah. And the problem is, is when you say a uh, uh, phrase like defund the police, that is something that can be rejected out of hand by a lot of people that support the ideology behind what you're saying. And if you have to go in and explain some, the meaning of something that is at best clunky, if not fully misleading, or if it doesn't take what a very small percentage of people who mean truly defund the police and expand that all the way out to people that are interested in like police reform, then it's all under the same umbrella and it gives a sort of agency to bad actors that are interested in misrepresenting positions for their own political gain, all the ammunition they, they need. And if any of you are brave enough to have had ongoing conversations with people on the opposite political side of you through the past year or so, you'll know that they're consuming their information from this, these sources that are using these hot button words and they're being used as a way to reject the premise behind it. And so you have people that are like, well, yeah, you want to vote for Joe Biden. Well, he wants to defund the police. You know, Joe Biden never said such a thing. Joe Biden doesn't want to defund the police. Joe Biden has actually been pro-police in a variety of ways. Right. Um, and so you end up being able to paint people with, with extreme views that they don't have and it has weight. And, the, and you saw it in this case, there was so much going on and this was best definitely, I think, you know, uh, uh, push back to Trump election. But when it didn't, when the stakes weren't that high, and weren't as high at the top of the ticket as they were on the top of the ticket with those down ballot races, you start seeing why house races across the country, you know, a lot of those people that swept into power in 2018 and that blue wave were swept right back out because they were painted with this defund the police uh, slogan that may not be an accurate representation of their views, but is something that's easy to have in a conversation or, you know, throw in an, in a debate or put on a yard sign that is enough to erode the support of those candidates and then they lose. And so 
Barack Obama's, you know, sort of like thesis here is that if you aren't more deliberative and selling your ideas, then you're going to allow the other side to define you. And when you do that, you are going to lose almost every time. And I think that that's what he was speaking to. And I give him credit for doing so because typically we don't hear presidents weigh in on um, political issues post-presidency, um, you know, with very few exceptions. And it's almost always things that are super bipartisan that are like so obvious because they do like to have deference for the people that are currently in power. Well, it's but, a statesman you know. thing, you know. It, 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 and, I, yes. I, will, I will throw this out there, Pat. I, as a suburban Denverite who has spent, you know, I'm in my 40s, early 40s now, and in 34 of those, of those years, 33 of those years, yeah, no, for 34 of those years I've spent in Denver. Um, as a suburban white Denverite, I do not have the same experiences with the police that a inner city uh, person of any, uh, uh, who, who is either a minority or, or has a different kind of experiences with the police. I've never shared that. I've never had that fear, even though I do have some skepticism as someone who spent about seven and a half years in a small town. I do have some skepticism of the power that police have. I get it on that end, but I, there's no way I can relate to the experiences of those who uh, have gone through that fear and profiling because I am a white uh, suburban Denverite who hasn't had those experiences. And one of the things that I've had to work on is like understanding. And I think what, what happened this summer is that uh, I think we, took, we, we had an opportunity to listen to people and we didn't take that opportunity to listen to them as always happens, right? It went from let's listen to what people are saying to let's focus on the looting and the protesting, right? Because that's the way conservatives kind of tend to like, oh, there's violence. Let's, let's scare some white people, right? And <coughs> that's, you know, that's their playbook. It's been like that forever. Um, I, I think we had an opportunity to listen to the experiences of people and we didn't do it. So defund the police is a, is a uh, extension of activism and it's an activism, activist kind of uh, uh, way of approaching things. I wouldn't say necessarily it's a slogan, but it was actually a step down from abolish the police. There were there are steps to these things. Whether people, what they mean is like defunding police, they mean defunding police. That whole thing doesn't matter. What happens in the grand scheme of things is the GOP and conservatives are better at using the Democrats or liberals or whatever left-wing ideal is out there, using it against them. They are far better oh. at that, that than, than we are. And I yes, think that, that part is kind of nailed in. And the, the, but the thing is, is that's what Obama's saying. We know that to be true. We know that to be the reality. And so we have to work within that reality. You know, what if the, um, the, the, I know you said it's not just a slogan, but just for term, you know, in an interest of giving it a name, it's a, it's a series of words that are trying to convey a policy. What right. if it was something along the lines of like police the police or reform the police or, right. you know, something like this, or, um, or, you know, I mean, I, I, when I would have this argument, because I think that, um, you know, and not to get too much into the policy of this, but I think that like mental health and criminology, you know, they do have a lot of um, overlap and, but they also should be dealt with in different ways. And so like, I know here in Denver, there's a pilot program where when there's distress calls involving mental health, they send out a mental health professional that's unarmed and such in order to address the situation. And they've had success in seeing de-escalation de and things like that. And it ends up creating an environment where you're no longer focusing on the idea that like every incident needs to be met with force, you know, I mean, when you're, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Right. And so, you know, there, it's like, you know, a guy walking home um, with an iced tea on that seems to be acting oddly would be much better to be confronted by a professional that understands that there's different mental health aspects to our behavior in public that right. they can assist with as opposed to just like, Hey, you're not listening to me. And so I'm going to move into my trained level of aggression um, uh, and elevate that in order to respond. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by coming up with the phrase defund the police, you gave your op political opponent the opportunity to just accuse you of being anti-police of which Obama 
was always going out of his way to say, you know, police have a hard job and, you know, all these sorts of things. And so it's just, um, we pay, the, a political price was paid for the way in which the messaging was done. Bill Clinton used to get a world of um, criticism for paying too much attention to the polls and being poll driven and all this. It was kind of like the heyday of, of that kind of data right. being available to, to plot our, our path and in, in political things. But, you know, he ended up with, um, ex- with slogans like welfare to work. It was welfare reform. And it was a bipartisan um, sort of attempt to improve the system. And it, it had a slogan that everyone could be like, we all, of course we want people to go from welfare to work. And that it hit both sides. The people that's like, oh, people on welfare, they just don't want to work. And then people that are like, I do want to work, but you know, I can't afford childcare and I need some help doing this and that in order to get me back on my feet. So the slogan was perfect, you know, or later on it was, you know, everything was about the bridge to the 21st century that gave them a wide opportunity to invest in technology, to like ride the wave of the dot-com bubble um, and all those sorts of things in order to affect their policy and to sell what they believe as the path forward to the voters, which rewarded them with putting them in power. But when you start getting into this sort of um, political science arena where you're saying things that the words of it don't match the policy of it, and the words of it are actually kind of more extreme so that you can be beat over the head with it by your opponent, then you're essentially committing political malpractice. And the victim is your the very cause of which you're trying to enact reform with you know so those things are important what we call them and how we engage with them and and what they truly are and i think that that's a great lesson to take forward and if you listen to the to the centrists of the party like joe manchin and some of these others who while democrats might reject him you know progressives might reject him you know we're lucky to have a democratic senator from west virginia that's the mindset that needs to happen is, you know, you're going to have Democrats from Brooklyn that are very progressive. You're going to have Democrats or acting Democrats or whatever from Vermont that don't take a political price for embracing, you know, democratic socialism. But you're also trying to elect Democrats in Ohio, and you're also trying to elect Democrats in, in rural Pennsylvania. You're also trying to elect Democrats, you know, in uh, Montana and these other places. And when you put the sort of weight around their neck. Um, of things that are easily dismissed by those people's electors or by those people's voters, then you're doing damage to your party and to your cause, you know, and that's again, where it's not just about what you're getting in your Twitter, Twitter battles. It's about the actual political science of building a coalition to move forward and expand your message to as many people as possible so that those reforms then have support to actually pass into law and be implemented. And then once they are, they're accepted as being a result of that hard work that's put in so yeah you know and and you i think we both agree on this thing i mean i I don't disagree on that i think i think there was a a series of blown opportunities that were exacerbated by the pandemic this uh summer um we as a country do a terrible job of listening to people and i think that I, what happens is that the listening becomes white people hijacking the things that that um, African Americans or all the very all the various minorities in this country who have valuable and and uh, uh, extensive things to talk about um, those people who have those views that that very much need to be heard get hijacked by white people. And that, that has always been my problem. And it becomes not listening. It becomes the hammer for which that you uh, just absolutely beat people over the head with who just, it turns into something that it's not. Um, defund the police is whatever. Um, I think that the ultimate goal should be having police officers who are uh, better trained at their jobs. Uh, you need to have as you pointed out, Pat, mental health professionals do the mental health work. Um, you need a better job at de-escalating situations, which has always been a problem. Uh, because uh, here's something that it, people don't say, but should say. Police, uh, like sheriff's uh, departments, uh, police departments, uh, uh, you know, state trooper departments, they all tend to be bastions for people who are, have power 
you know, if you want to have some sort of semblance of power and you're kind of that person, rather than mentally check sometimes that this person is not right, they are allowed in because they're skilled. And I think one of the big things that you need in police departments is to mental health check the police officers that you are bringing in to make sure that they're not trigger happy, prone to fear, easy fear, can't de-escalate the situation regardless of the mental health situation. There are things that they should do. And I think that police departments have definitely been let down on the side on that. On the, on the flip side of that, like I said, you have a small town in Eastern Colorado that probably uh, has just a county uh, sheriff's department that's located 30 miles away from their town. They never interact with the police other than to say, oh, I know Horace down the block here or something like that. That's it. Their, their frame of reference for what you were talking about with the police department is completely alien to a person who has to has had horrible experiences, especially if you're an African-American in this country. Those two things um, are clashing because their experiences fundamentally differ and I don't know in this country, just in a broader sense, I don't know how you're going to bridge that gap. Maybe, and you're, you're absolutely right, Pat, maybe in a sense that you need to find a commonality and some of that is sloganeering in this country to where you can like get a guy in, in rural Colorado who like has one sheriff that he ever dealt with in his life to uh, someone who is uh, an African American or a Hispanic or any any someone who lives in the in the inner city who has extensive history with the police, actively and some would say profiling their 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 neighborhood, you have to have bridge that gap between the two of them. And part of that, as you were pointing out, is how you say it. Well, in the path to get that done is to include the police in the policy. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just. I mean, police feel like they're under attack in this country by and large because they're hearing these slogans and they're seeing these demonstrations and they're like, hey, I go out every day and I put myself on the line and this is the kind of thanks I get. And many police are doing it for the right reasons. And the majority of police do protect and serve us in the manner in which they're, they're um, um, charged. But if you could get them involved by giving them something to attach to, then they will be just as interested in rooting out the bad actors amongst their uh, colleagues than our overall society is. And, but you're never gonna be able to do that when you wanna just like defund their profession, you know? And so what you do is you talk about, you know, um, diversifying leadership ranks. So there's going to be a huge member or a huge number of people in police forces, you know, particularly those that are women or minorities that want to see more representation um, in the higher levels of administration within police forces across the country. You start, you know, demonstrating to them the benefits from some of these pilot programs of how engaging, having mental health professionals engage with people in the right circumstances or go along with police to certain calls, allow for de-escalation and allow for true um, opportunities for those people to to get the health that they need and no longer become on the radar of the police as time moves forward and 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 then you start you know seeing communities embrace this sort of leadership from the police departments and then you don't have a, a, a schism between the police and the mayor or the city council or the governor or whomever right. and so you know that's how you get things done it's all about coalition building as it has always been and one way to do that is to give people that you need involved in your coalition um, the opportunity to say yes. And you don't give police the opportunity to buy into a program called defund them. You know, nobody is going to support a cause that, you know, basically seeks to eliminate their chosen profession of which we elevate to a level of like nobility in a lot of cases, because they do provide a service that helps our society function. And, yeah. and it then it takes away from, uh, you know, if you're on the, then on the progressive side and, and, and you're advancing these ideas, it takes you away from the waste of time of having to be like, answer the questions like, well, who are you going to call when someone breaks into your house? Or, oh, if you're at, you know, your BLM sticker on your car, you know, nobody should come to your house if you're getting robbed, you know, get rid of all of that bad faith argument by not making it part of the platform in which you're engaging in the conversation. Right. And so I think that is the thing that Barack Obama is talking about. And Barack Obama too comes from uh, uh, being twice elected by 
um, you know, very healthy margins, um, you know, having a tremendous amount of support amongst the population and not just by progressives, but, and Democrats, but by many independents and even some Republicans. And, you, you know, he was data driven, like they won that 08 election because they had things down to the precinct level. Um, and they knew what they needed in various communities. And when he needed to go to a certain community and deliver a certain message, or when he needed to target a certain sort of like policy discussion towards a certain type of voter, then he was able to do so. And he is a good authority now to tell us, look what happened. You know, we allowed the conversation to be stolen from us. We allowed our words to be twisted. And we provided the words that they then twisted and threw in our face. And we can pay a consequence for that you know and if there's one lesson to learn from the past four years it's like that the consequences of not having a voice in the policy dis discussions going on at the executive and legislative level puts you at a disadvantage and even mass protests and you know tinderbox environments and you know further examples of the horrific things that you're pushing back against aren't enough to break through to that level of chatter it's like you know still like oh there was another unarmed um, black person that was killed by the police and people are are protesting and people are demonstrating and it gets bastardized as well they're all just anti-police you know and then the, the argument's lost and you're never going to get anything done and that's why nothing has gotten done and uh you know you find a way where you make those moderate people of the opposite party have to reject the things that you're saying that make perfect sense that have widespread appeal across the society and then they pay the political price for it and are replaced by people that are willing to say those things and that's how you make progress if that's what yeah. your interest is no, it's not it, just advocacy and it gets bashed as incrementalism and i the, it, the you know what incrementalism is politics i mean that's it, it's a series of compromises that you don't want to make um, it is a, it is a meeting of, this is what something we can do to make this thing worse. So that, that you is ask for what you want yeah. and to get what you need. Yes. That is the whole structure of sort of legislative politics is that everyone comes to the table with their demands and everybody walks away a little bit dissatisfied. And that's exactly how it's designed and that's how things, you know, end up working out. Um, yeah. and then maybe you get another bite at the apple later. You know, yep. and then you can continue to incrementally make adjustments to that as time goes forward. And, and a willingness to have that long view is would be very helpful to people, no matter what their side is. That like we're not just going to go in and get what we want. You see this right now with a lot of the uh, the, the pushback on some of uh, Biden's campaign or I mean cabinet nominees, where it's like, well, what the hell? We wanted you know this type of person. How can they put this other type of person who's just a government veteran? You know, and it's like. Think about what you're saying there, you know, I mean, you're getting the president that you wanted, he's putting more progressive and a more diverse group of people in than anyone ever has. And just because they're not all exactly who like your view necessarily had doesn't mean you that that person isn't going to be more willing to advance your agenda than had we lost the election altogether. So don't burn down your own house. I, you know, here's a, this is gonna, people are gonna hate this for me, but I don't care at this point. I, oh. I, <laughs> um, People need to know civics. People need to be learned, taught civics. Um, there is a miss, and I do, and I, I think this part of this is on, uh, I would say discourse on Twitter kind of dumbs everyone down. It's the lower, lowest common denominator. And uh, what it does is it kind of gives people the wrong impression about how government works. Uh, people tend to want a parliamentary system rather than what we have in this country which is definitely not that the reason we have two parties is because uh parliamentary government's not the reason we have it but the, the, just to explain the difference is parliamentary governments tend to form their government after they're elected amongst the parliament members of parliament there's obviously in like in england there's upper and lower houses like there is in america but really your members of parliament form your government then you're elected prime minister in that we have three exclusively different branches of government that you are already installing people into and that is why we tend to have only two parties because the 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 uh, they're opposing forces then you do it that way and a lot of people when they're talking is it, they seem to want something that is only achievable like a coalition government in 
a parliamentary government where you form a coalition of opposing ideas from based on the members in the party who are actually already in the government. It doesn't work that way here. And that is why you tend to, it can tend to, tends to polarize in this country is because of the way our government is formed. And if you want to change it, if you, if you want it to make it more pluralistic, you would have to fundamentally alter the way we do government. Uh, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's just the way this, our, our system of government works. Well, and it's been manipulated to the point where it's, it's like, um, I think we've talked about this analogy before, it's similar to sport, where you have a team that you love, they can do no wrong, um, you have a team, their rival you hate, they can do no right, you end up having a horrible person on your team, but you say, hey, at least he's one of us, uh, the other team has somebody who did one questionable thing, and he's the devil, I mean, that's what's transferred into our political discussions now, and to your point, uh, Jeff, it's like, yes, the, the, the idea that the ticket to entry is not a general understanding of civics is something that we do pay a price for because, you, you know, the idea is, is if you have a better understanding of the function of government, the, the sort of history of how um, things have gotten done in the past, you realize that it happens in the middle. You know, if you have centrist people from both parties, you know, the blue dogs uh, of, the, of the past or the gang of five or eight or however many, you know, where they're the ones that truly have the most control. And if you look at going into this next Congress, you know, regardless of what ends up happening in the Georgia runoffs and who has um, a majority, um, if you do have six or eight people that are not just always going to be partisan voters, then those are the people that the executive branch needs to sell the bill to. Those are the people that the, the flanks on the left and the right have to convince to put some of their policy positions into. But those people are going to be the ones that can control the path of legislation when you don't have that which we haven't for the past 12 years and you end up or eight you know 10 years you have um what basically can just be an obstructionist policy which mitch mcconnell is uh, you know the chief architect of which is right. like if the majority of the majority which i think is the hide rule in the house um they call it um if, if we don't have a majority of the majority or uh, then we're not even going to bring it to the floor so if you could pass something with 40 democrats and lose some of them that are maybe you know more left and 20 republicans but lose some of them that are much more right then you end up with you know a, a a compromise bill that addresses certain things. And if you take this backwards, just to this past year, if that had happened with, you know, COVID relief or with, um, you know, some of these restaurant act or um, working to get like PPE and things like that, these bills could have passed and they may not have been what the far left of the party, the loudest mouths in the Congress on the left right. wanted. And they, and they may have forced Nancy Pelosi to admit to a compromise or that you know she had to give some things away but yep. the fact that there's no compulsion to do that is what puts you in a position where you're only speaking to your own members all the time and then the populace as a whole um pays the price for that and that leads into people voting against their best interest voters voting against their best interest all the time you know there's a lot of people in this country in those very red counties that you see every time you look at the electro map that are desperate for stimulus because they're suffering under this coronavirus situation right. and we have a long history of providing money to like farmers and things in this country that's almost just baked into the sort of electrical electoral um cake at all times where there's no democrat or republican that's going to say no don't pass a farm bill yeah. um but as far as new legislation it's always through this new lens of like well i'm a fiscal conservative you go back to the obama years and it was like hey if we're gonna you know bail somebody out then we need to find cuts in other areas and you know they had you know this sort of like idea that you know austerity was the only thing that they could trade for any sort of government spending, even at times of like dire need. And now you have a situation where it's like they're using like one thing, like liability protection for businesses to be their excuse as to why not to even come to the table and have a conversation with the idea that the economy is in desperate need of stimulus right now. And if you had that centrist coalition that had been cultivated over the years and that everybody knew that they could go to, then maybe you do get an element of both. You get like, okay, we'll offer you know protections in these ways, maybe not exactly what everybody wanted. And then we'll offer this type of stimulus, maybe not exactly what everyone wanted, but it's something, you yeah. know? And then you, that's how you actually see legislation passed. If you go look at the past four years, like how many times was there a bill of any consequence really passed? Right. And the, you know, it really comes down to the tax cut. Mm -hmm. Then there was the healthcare bill that lost. And then there was, you know, the 
first round of stimulus. Those are the basically the three accomplishments of the Congress um, in the past four years. And that's because there's no motivation to actually get things done. It's just about representing to your communities um, that you're standing up for your core principles and right. that you are unwilling to bend on those. And gerrymandering, of course, facilitates that as well. But that's a discussion for another day. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's, <laughs> we, could, we should uh, do a, a thing on this podcast where we're just like um, um, Morty and Pat talk about uh, civics. <laughs> yes. American government. American government, yes. <laughs> with, with, uh, with CSG politics. <laughs> with CSG politics. Oh, that'll man. be a, that'll be downloaded heavily, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, I think that's a, we talked about every we hit all the points here. Um, got to don't think anything notable is happening this next week. So hopefully everyone is uh, is uh, going to be safe and happy and stay inside, please. Just just either stay inside or wear your goddamn mask. I mean, just 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 simple things to do so we don't like yeah. have a disease or virus running rampant through our society anymore. In all seriousness to that, it's like we're on the precipice of some great news and, and starting to really see some results from these vaccines, but they're not going to save us from what's happening right now. So be smart, do the right things, make the decisions for yourself, your family, and your community that will allow as many of us as possible to you know, be around for that uh, big party we're going to have when we get everybody uh, in a position where we can gather again. Absolutely. I look forward to that, uh, that uh, party, that, that shindig at your house. Uh, <laughs> hey, I'm happy, always happy to host as you know. I, I will drive all <laughs> the way down to uh, Raton, uh, New Mexico, where you live. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they put a train up there and there you I'll pick you up at the, uh, at the closest light rail. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is right. That's right. Because I, I do have like less than, uh, I said like a half mile away from my house is a, is oh, a see? big station. We're, bridge, we're, we're bridging the, uh, the borders uh, with right. uh, mass, mass transit. <laughs> That's right. I could do that and then I can drink to my heart's content. Um, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, if it's, uh, you know, look, it's Sunday. So that means it's CSG politics to steal from another, another program. So well, Pat and I will be talking to you next week.